Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Good afternoon. My name is John Waldron, and I'm the President and Chief Operating Officer of the firm. And it's my privilege and pleasure to have Julie Sweet with us this afternoon. Uh, Julie has been, since 2015, the CEO of Accenture North America, running the consulting firm's largest market in the United States, serving more than 70% of the Fortune 500. Julie joined Accenture as the general counsel in 2010 after leaving Cravath, Swain & Moore, one of the largest law firms in the country, uh, where she was a partner in its corporate department. Uh, we're very lucky to have her with us today, and appreciate the time. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks. It's a special privilege because when I was a partner at, uh, at Cravath, Goldman was one of my clients. That's great. So, so you have a very interesting story. Uh, you, you grew up in, I would say, not a particularly privileged background. Um, uh, as I understand it, you grew up in Orange County. Your father painted cars. Your mother was a beautician. Uh, when you were in eighth grade, your mother went back to college or went to college yeah. and graduated, I think, when you were a freshman. Right. Uh, if I have those facts right, which is a pretty extraordinary thing. So maybe just describe what it was like to grow up that way with your mom deciding to go back to school at the same time as you were in college, and, and what was your, you know, kind of the, their work ethic, how did that have an impact on you? Right. Well, I was really lucky. I have amazing parents, and, uh, you know, every day they would say to us, basically, if you work hard, you can do anything, right? And I think that's very empowering to have parents who say that, but was even more important was that we saw it. So my parents, you know, they decided that if they wanted to have a better life, one of them had to go to school. You know, my dad was working, three kids to, you know, mouths, a lot of mouths to feed, and so they decided it should be my mom. And my mom not only went to school, she worked part-time, and, and I really don't know how she did all this, but like when I was in high school, I did speech and debate, and you had to wear suits, and we did not have money to buy that. My mother's an amazing seamstress, and so she would stay up at night and make suits for me. And she would then, on the weekends, go to my debate tournaments. And, and it wasn't like my dad was sitting by, because in order for my mom to do this, he had to change. Because up until that point, my mom you know, had stayed home, and she cooked and cleaned. And there's some like, pretty legendary meals of my dad learning to cook <laughs> that we you know, still laugh about, because uh, let's just say the early forays were not strong. But, uh, I'm sure he got better over time. He, he, did, he did. He got very well. Very, very good. But, um, you know, but it really, for, for myself and my, my siblings, we saw what it meant to you can work hard and achieve things, because my mother did graduate, and we did have a better life. And, and that itself you know, was like, sort of forms that belief. Um, I always laugh, though, about you know, the work ethic, because uh, there's a great story that you will relate to, and probably most of us in this room. When I was uh, just out of law school, so I joined Cravath, I was there maybe six weeks, and I, was, I had just done my fourth all-nighter in six weeks, that was with the day, in the day, and I call home seeking sympathy from my parents. And my father says to me, he says, do you work inside? And I said, yes. He's like, do you have heat in the winter and air conditioning in the summer? Yes. When you work late, do they give you a car home so you're safe? Yes. He's like, so what are you complaining about? <laughs> and that was that. And I never complained again about how hard I worked. That's so. good. That's, that's great. It's a good lesson. Yeah. So you worked your way through high school and college. Uh, you worked, as I understand, at a company called PhoneBuy, where you were given the opportunity to hire someone, but that hire did not last long. What, what happened there, and what was the lesson that you learned? You know, it's funny. I was so excited. I was... Um, 
it was during college, and I was working for John Paul, who's a great, really great CEO and a, a great person. Like he you know, saw that I needed to work, and he used to give me, if I was home four days, he would put me to work because he knew I needed the money for college. And so he gave me this opportunity to hire a receptionist, and he said, "You go do it." And so I, you know, put an ad out. I interviewed. I brought this woman in, and I, I let her put her things in my office. And about two weeks, two weeks in, she wasn't doing that great. She, she. Um, went out for lunch and never came back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I discovered I had $200 missing from my purse. <laughs> and, and I remember talking to uh, John about it, and he, he said, look, I know that that $200 is a big deal to you, right? This was back in the 80s, you know. Uh, and, uh, and I know that he's like, but you need to learn a lesson because you, know, you hired her and you have to be accountable for her. And it was such an important lesson about how every hire matters and you've really got to get good at you know, a talent and hiring and what it means. And you know, when I think about our, our world today, right, um, we are in a people business and uh, that, you know, we, we think very much about, you know, what does it take to be successful for our clients and who do we have to hire? And we spend a lot of time not just on who to hire, but then, you know, when we bring people in, what's the experience like, how to develop people. And, uh, and I will tell you that I, you know, that early lesson was, you know, has been really important because I've been in people businesses since, uh, you know, since then. Well, you've gotten very good at hiring. I mean, you were, you, you've hired a number of people and managed a, an enormous sized uh, employee force. What, what's, what's the process you use today to hire and what's, what are the instincts that you bring to it? And how do you think about that hiring, you know, kind of interview process and, and enumerating what's important. So I think the probably the most important thing that's changed, if you think about us over the years, we've shifted, you know, to a business that's really innovation-led, and we're, you know, we're following our clients, right? And you think about the disruption and the change that's gone around us, and so probably the most important trait that we look like look for today is uh, we'd call natural curiosity, people who want to continuously learn, mm -hmm. because that is the shift that we've made. At Accenture, if you look over the last two years, for example, our people—we have 500,000 people globally, we have 55,000 uh, in North America—and they've completed over 20 million learning activities. And these aren't mandated; this is just part of the culture. And so, we really look for individuals, whether they're on campus or experienced hires, who want to be a part of a culture where change is prevalent. We are expected to be a continuous learner. So. You went to college and you studied Mandarin. And when you were in college, Mandarin wasn't the thing. It was more kind of Japan or other countries around the world that were you know, more on the rise and, and China had yet to really emerge. So you That's decided right. to study Mandarin. You spent, I think, a year in Taiwan and Beijing. H why Mandarin? Why China? Why, you, know, you, were, you were a visionary, clearly, at that point. So just talk to us about that. I know it, it is hard to imagine, right, China not being a big yeah. deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like a lot of our lives are moments, right? Like, moments in time that mattered. And I can tell you the exact moment I decided to learn Chinese. Uh, and I think it's, it's important as leaders because you know, I, I, I'd won a scholarship from the Irvine Company. And I went to the, the dinner. And I sat next to a man named Howard, Howard Margulius. And he asked what you ask every graduating senior, right? You know, what are you going to study? And I said, I'm not sure, maybe international relations. So he said, what language? I said, well, I studied French, but it's kind of boring. And he said to me, how about Chinese? Now, I had never thought about learning Chinese. right? It wasn't on the radar screen. Turns out he had um, a trading company with China. He thought it was going to be really big. We talked about it at dinner. I went home that night. I told my parents, 
who you know, didn't have a passport. We'd been to Tijuana in Canada, okay, on a camping trip. And I said, I am going to study Chinese and I'm going to live there for a year. And they said, that sounds nice, dear. And that is what I did. Uh, you know, I went to college and they, at that time, the Chinese teacher, she was very, um, we call it very like very fierce, and she wanted to you know, get out anybody who wasn't serious. And so imagine being a freshman in college. You take Chinese five days a week at 8 a.m. Right? You had to be really serious. Uh, but it was transformative for me. And for me to learn, you know, to live in that world, to, su to succeed in that world, right? to take a risk, uh, really changed how I looked at opportunities. And you know, I probably didn't understand it at the time so much as I do now in hindsight, that it put me on a path to being willing to, you know, to really to experiment, to, to look at things differently. Talk, I mean, to me, you took a big risk. That, that was a moment where you took a big risk and, and you just were wired in a way where you were prepared to take a risk. Just talk about taking risks. You know, taking risks at the end of the day is overcoming fear, right? right? And, uh, you know, I often will counsel leaders that if you feel comfortable, then you probably aren't pushing yourself enough and you're probably not pushing the business enough either, right? And it's really become a litmus test and a lot of my management team now, they think about it that way because it's a different way. It's like, instead of taking, thinking about taking risks, you know, people kind of react, what do you mean take risk? It's like, are you challenging yourself enough? Are you challenging your business enough? And if you're not taking risks, then you probably aren't. And so thinking about it that way, instead of just abstractly, like I need to take risk, I think has been a key to like having people think differently and also be comfortable with, yeah, there should be a little bit of a knot in the pit of your stomach, mm -hmm. right? Or again, you're not challenging yourself. So just staying with that theme, talk about failure and how you think about failure and you know, to your point, if you're just thinking I'm gonna fail, then you're not gonna take a lot of risk. But if you get overcome that fear, but how do you, how do you coach people to, to fail? And at Accenture, do you guys think about failing enough so that you're actually taking enough risk, failing fast, failing slower? Just, just, just talk about that thematically. Well, in my old legal training, as I used to have to remind people, when there are risks, that means sometimes they happen, mm -hmm. right? And I think people do forget that, right? And, uh, it's not straight and up to the right all the time. Right, like saying risk doesn't mean you always succeed, right? Like sometimes risks actually materialize, right? And so, you know, a, a saying I like is be fearless but prepared, right? And so, you know, you have to take smart risks. And then, um, you know, but if you are gonna challenge yourself, and you are gonna take risks, you are sometimes gonna fail. And so what does that mean? So, you know, one of the examples I give it as Accenture, when in, in 2013, we missed earnings for only the second time in our history. And we decided we really had to move much faster and we did a big transformation. And if you go back, there's, uh, you know, there's, you can see our brand and it lists our businesses from strategy to operations and it's missing one in that first year. It's missing the word consulting. We moved so quickly, and we thought about it at the time as, are we moving too fast for us, right? Because it's a big risk, a big organization, that we forgot to kind of give an identity to our consulting business. And so a year later, we um, changed that. We, it wasn't that we didn't have a consulting business, but we hadn't branded it and really given it a, a culture and an identity externally and internally. And we used it as an example of how you know, we had to move quickly, which involved risk, and it wasn't perfect. And this is how we as a company need to be. And so instead of being embarrassed or apologetic, we used it as a lesson for, you know, to be agile, to, um, to be able to move fast enough in the environment, we're gonna make some mistakes and that's okay. 
And, and that's what we try to inculcate is that if you are, you know, you have to take risks, it's how you deal with them. And, you know, of course, they need to be smart risks. So you went to Columbia Law School, and then, as you said, you went to Cravath, very, as I said, I think, yeah. a very prestigious law firm. Um, there were two female partners when you arrived. I think you were the ninth female partner in the firm uh, when you made partner. Um, and then you helped kind of launch a women's program at the firm. Just talk about the early days of Cravath, realizing there were only two women partners at the firm and how that felt to you. And then as you made partner and you started to have a leadership position, you could start to impact the firm in terms of adding more women to their upper ranks and really mentoring and training women and guiding them through the firm. Just, just, just talk about your experience there. Sure. Um, you know, again, you, you go back to moments, right, in your life. And so in 1999, Cravath brought in unconscious bias training. I'm sure you guys have that we here. Do. And it was, it was early days. That was and, early. And uh, I mean, really early. And I, I, as I look back, you know, at a firm that didn't have a lot of women at the time, it was very far thinking. And it was uh, two weeks before the meeting when I was to become a partner. So I go up to the conference room, big old fashioned conference room, you know, 30 people in the room with a woman facilitator. There were probably three women in the room. And I was by far the most senior woman. So we're going through the unconscious bias training and the facilitator turns to me and says, Julie, you know, you're a senior woman. Do you have anything to share with your colleagues? Like, have you experienced it? And uh, it's funny, I still remember where I was seated, right? And I went to speak, and I started sobbing. Mm. And you're two weeks away from the partner decision. Two weeks away from the partner decision, right? And uh, I actually couldn't compose myself, and I had to get up and leave. And of course, it went like through the firm, like, you know, I mean, everyone <laughs> knew what was gonna about to happen, right? And, uh, you know, there's a knock on the door, and, uh, uh, the Susan Webster, our corporate um, woman part, first corporate woman partner, you know, comes in and she's like, "There's been a meeting, you know, I've been asked to come see how you are, right?" And uh, and it was funny because she knew, like, she knew there wasn't a scandal behind right. it, right? Um, it was just, you know, for me in that moment, all the little things that I had dealt with from clients, you know, it, it, it's, in fact, as much from clients. Remember, I'd spent some of my time in Asia, you know all came in, and it was really at that moment that I said to myself, and I remember talking to Susan about it, is that I'm about to be a partner, and my commitment that I made at that time was that I'm gonna make it so that this is different for women. And, you know, I've tried to live that commitment, and for me it's actually been a learning, though, to go from just gender and women to more broadly um, diversity, right? And in Accenture we have all kinds of diversity from LGBTQI, ethnicity, uh, people who work from outside the US and the US, and, and really that focus on, you know, what are we as leaders and really as individuals, because, you know, whether you're the leader or you, you know, you're just a, you know, you're a consultant who has an analyst working for you, you know, what does it mean to make our workplaces a place where everybody really feels like they can belong and they don't have those examples? And that's something that's a really important part of who I am as a leader and, and why I'm so proud to be at Accenture because we have such a commitment. You know, we know we don't have it all right by any means, but we are really committed to continue to make progress. Let's just go back a little bit to your career and the transition. So you were partner Cravath and you jumped off that, that train and right. you decided to go to corporate America. So why, why did you do that? What was the, what was the thought process? Another, another calculated risk. Right. Uh, so again, another moment, you know, I'm sitting at my desk, the phone rings, my secretary had, you know, stepped away, 
because Cravath partners didn't usually open, answer their own phones. Okay, this was, again, that was the day, right? Uh, and um, and it, was a, it was a recruiter saying, I know Accenture partners never leave, I mean, Cravath partners never leave, but I have this great opportunity. And I knew the brand name Accenture, so I took a meeting. And I'll never forget, you know, I, we had an incredibly charismatic CEO at the time, Bill Green. And I met him, and he's definitely the best sales guy I have ever met. Right? And uh, I met with him, and he said to me, I'm not looking for a lawyer. I'm looking for a business leader with legal experience. And you know, it really spoke to me as just a, a, just a huge opportunity to grow. And you know, I was 42. I could see my future. There would be different deals. I worked with great clients. But I knew what my life was going to be like yeah. as a Cravath partner, right? And uh, you know, I had two small kids at the time, or three and two, and uh, and I just said, you know, I don't want to know, I don't want to see my future that way. And uh, so I took the leap, and you know, it's been the best decision I could have ever made. And I loved Cravath. I mean, and I am incredibly grateful to the firm. I think it's an excellent firm, and I am a leader today. I'm the leader I'm today because of the training and the mentorship I did there, um, but Accenture is a truly outstanding company, so I was very so lucky. talk about the importance of your legal background and training in, in terms of your development as a leader and the way you are as an executive and, and a professional. Just talk about the, the importance of legal background. Well, you know, uh, lawyers process information very quickly and then have to make decisions. And if you think about what's happening around it, you know, like we, everyone talks about the epic disruption, right? There's a level playing field today. I mean, why can I succeed in technology coming from a legal background, which was not, you know, exactly the, at the forefront of technology? It's because everything's changed. So if you want to learn and you're able to process information quickly, right, it's a huge advantage. And it's not a one and done. And so, and, the other thing, you know, we look for leaders at Accenture that are com we call comfortable with ambiguity because we are making decisions today very differently than five years ago, Sorry. right? You can't see this. You've got to take the risk, make the decision without knowing exactly, you know, is you know what's going to happen, how technology is changing things, and that's what lawyers do. Good lawyers, right? Don't just lay out the risks; they make the the decisions. Now, I will tell you the one thing that probably I can't say came from my legal background is. You know, at Accenture, we talk a lot about an innovation mindset, mm -hmm. right? So that's probably not the legal part of me. That might be a little bit more the like going to China. That was the part, going to China part, you know? right? <laughs> uh, but it's interesting when I'm talking to CEOs, you know, who are thinking about doing new things. It's never about the technology. It's about how prepared are you as a company, and are your lead? How prepared are your leaders? Because you can bring the coolest new solution, but if you don't have a leader that's willing to think differently. No and able to bring people along a journey, you're not gonna be able to change. You won't be successful. Um, and so I think, you know, as we look at leadership, it's the, the ability to continuously learn, right? So, and that has to be a leadership characteristic, which was very different for us. I mean, it used to be training for, for the young people, mm -hmm. right? Once you got the title. Fully formed. Right? But now it's continuous learning the ability to make decisions um, in the face of ambiguity, and then this innovation mindset. So you and I were talking backstage just about the, the kind of three big trends that you see that are really driving uh, technology transformation in the world. Just, just, just to give a little bit of a sense for that. Yeah, so I think about it this way. So if I'm a CEO today, what do I need to make sure I know about, right, for today and tomorrow? And it's artificial intelligence, blockchain, and 5G, if you were just to pick three. Artificial intelligence, by far the most significant, and it's in the here and now, right? I, you know, we have 
so many different examples. It, it's transforming the back office at scale now. It's really transforming business models. It's mature. There's lots more to go. It'll, it'll drive a decade, right, at least. It'll become a core competency for all companies, right, both in partnership and themselves. So you have to know that because you, you apply early, it now. You think we're really in the early days? How would you characterize where we are? In we're the still in the early days, but it's moving from pilots to actual scaled solutions. Quickly. Particularly, for example, you know, we've invested $200 million in the back office, like providing a platform, because frankly, companies don't want to have data scientists figuring out how to do finance transformation. They want to do it on, you know, how to do pricing and new business models. And you can do that now at scale, right? But, you know, today, today, you know, you have HR. In the future, you will have what I call the AAA, um, what we, you know, refer to automation, analytics, artificial intelligence. That'll be a core competency of every company. And it's just beginning, right? Um, but, it, but right now, you can do it at scale for big, big impact. It's sort of the now. Blockchain is different. Blockchain is in the you know, pilot stage. It's not into full production. And you know, there's two questions every CEO should ask. You know, what is it, and how it might affect our industry? And then, should I be a first mover? Right? And for most companies today, we still say you should not be a first mover. It's really important in supply chain, authentication, you know, of drugs, for example, we did a great um, experiment with, you know, DHL, a thousand, you know, a million people a year die from counterfeit drugs. We did a pilot using blockchain across six countries to um, increase transparency, right? So it'll be really important in authentication, logistics, financial services, you know, 90% of banks, as you know, are experimenting in settlements and payments and identity. Sure. But those are still early days. But the point is, if you're a CEO today, it will be transforming how we buy and sell, how we interact with government, you know, how we authenticate everything. And so it's not that you can ignore it. You've got to make the other digital investments that are more mature, are going to provide you know, more near term that are easier to execute. But you do need to understand where it's going. And the final one is 5G, which is the farthest out. Again, very, very early days. But you know, 4G, so just think about 4G. 4G created the world we live in today. So before 4G, you, know, you couldn't have had Uber, uh, Airbnb, and we couldn't live our lives out of our smartphone. So pretty transformative. Democratized broadband, right? just to, uh, okay. Right, yeah. quite transformative. Very. 5G will be 10 times yep. more transformative, right? And if you just think about that, right, now, it's very early days. Because of the speed and throughput and, and scale of it? Well, of it's 100 times more bandwidth right, just than the, Just a lot of bandwidth. So, and zero delay. We call it zero latency, yep. right? So, because today, just if you're in an autonomous vehicle and you have, even it's a milliseconds delay, which you have under 4G, it matters, right? Imagine when you have zero delay. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of time now thinking about for industries, what does that mean? And if you're a CEO, you have to understand what are the transformations, and then you know where's it going to come first? Because it, it, it's so expensive. You know, the, the telecom companies are going to have to invest billions, and if you're in partnership and you have access to it early, it's going to mean something different for your business. And so, even though it's not the here and now, so a lot of what we do is you know understanding for companies. You know, what's now and what's coming and what do you have to prepare for? And so those are the three big ones that um, you really have to pay attention to. That's great. 
I'll give my last piece of advice, however. I was going to ask you for your last piece of advice, yeah. for Goldman Sachs or for, Not for, or, Goldman, or for our folks? No, because no, I see we have a lot of different um, yeah. you know, generations in the room yeah. and that. And so, um, you know, at a time of great change, one of the most important things I think we can do is become great communicators. Mm. And uh, I think we don't always enough as companies train and emphasize that. It's certainly something we now look for in our leaders is the importance of communication. Uh, there's a book that I always recommend. It's called Weekend Language. It's read pervasively at Accenture. It's about storytelling. Uh, and so it's the one piece of career advice I would give uh, to uh, every young person starting off is you know, become a great communicator. And you can start by reading Weekend Language. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate great. it. Thanks. This Good. was a lot Good of fun, John. Great. Thanks. This podcast was recorded on March 15th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.